My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, Era, and today I'm excited to have Satish Bala. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys know him, but if you don't, he's the man behind Daisy Fest. He's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, you might not know about his first startup, Blue Band Digital, but you probably maybe heard about uh, Schoolia, which is his most recent startup. And I'm pretty excited to kind of share a story. Uh, I think I first heard of Satish when Tamil Culture were doing, I think, something around DC Fest, like I think it was like five, six years ago, which ages me. But, um, you know, I think it was like I just knew Satish as like the guy who was like really into music and kind of bringing South Asian music to kind of the mainstream. But I didn't know that he was, a, you know, like a tech entrepreneur. So it was cool to kind of learn that after the fact. But I won't steal a lot of, you know, I won't steal his glory. I'll let Satish himself, the man, introduce like himself, his family, his upbringing, and let's get this going. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for having me. You know, every time I get to hang out and share my story, uh, it it reminds me of of the struggles and like where I am today. And sometimes you need that uh, reminder, uh, and so I appreciate that. But you know, my story, like everybody else, is that's a new immigrant. Um, Started similar, man. You know, I was born in India, Tamil Nadu, and then we moved to Singapore when I was three to chase a better life. And then we left again at 14 to chase a better life. And, you know, we landed in Scarborough. Scarborough in the 80s, early 90s was horrible. Just culture clash, identity issues, territory wars. And like this is brown kid who just landed trying <laughs> to figure out, like, am I even brown? Like, I didn't even think about being South Asian until... Scarborough prior to that I was just another Asian kid in Singapore and I was like wait I, I come from Tamil Nadu I speak Tamil but I don't I'm not Tamil but then there's all these other languages what the hell is going on so you know uh, and I think a lot of people can reflect you know a little bit of what I'm saying in themselves um, the the thing that sort of you know changed for me is is you know choosing the path of entrepreneurship and in many ways, um, I didn't have a choice. You know, every time I try to fit into the to the ecosystem, I was booted out, man. Like, you know, uh, the first time I experienced violence at home was at 10 for a bad report card. I got a bunch of C's and I got beat up. And I was like, wait, what just happened? Like <laughs> 10 years into my life, something changed. And I don't know what I did wrong. And at 14, I thought I was getting good grades. But Singapore basically said your son is only going to be qualifying for blue collar work. So then again, it was like up and out. Now I'm in Scarborough. I don't really know what's going on. I don't know if I'm a good student or not. I go to school, but I don't really understand it. Uh, and it was until, you know, university where even then I tried to get a job through co-op and they're like, your GPA is not good enough. I was like, wait, I'm tired of begging for permission to get into the system. Like it just doesn't make any sense. So becoming an entrepreneur or in my case, choosing to be, unemployed on purpose to figure out what I want to do ended up becoming the greatest gift for me from you know the businesses that I started the ones that succeeded the ones that didn't work out all helped me build my dream life you know uh, and today when I'm introduced somewhere and I say hey Satish Bala you know three-time digital exit guy runs a non-for-profit through music and all this stuff that is a purely strategically built life not the one that was offered to me at, at, you know, 12 or 13. So, you know, that's kind of how I look at my life. You know, 
once I figure out what I want to do and it comes from a position of, of real intent, uh, I go get it. There's no stopping. There's no, there's no ceiling you can't break through. There's nothing you can't be. And I, and I truly live that lifestyle. So that's, that's all I got this far. That's a great intro. Uh, maybe tell us about kind of like, you know, family upbringing. Like, how is that? Like, you know, you mentioned, you know, like the strict Tamil parents, you know. Yeah, it was you're, horrible, you're to be honest. Like, it was horrible. Like, my, yeah. my dad, rest in peace, passed away, you know, five, six years ago. Uh, and he's the only person I've never forgiven in my life, mm. you know, um, because we grow up in such a harsh environment without knowing why it's bad. Like, like we weren't poor. I didn't have to fight to eat, you know. I always had a roof over my head, but there was a family dynamic around love and respect and 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 like future planning that never made sense to me. And then because I, we left India so early, I've only known the five people in my life, my mom and dad, my, my two siblings, the five of us. And so there was nobody else to take the blow. There was nobody else to help me course correct or understand where I fit in, which is all really important. That's the point of having a family, right? Where if your immediate family doesn't make sense, there's other people that you can learn from. So when all that's a vacuum and the four people you live with don't like you for whatever reason, and you don't know how to deal with the world yet, you grow up in a whole different mindset of what it means to be independent and, and, and resilient, you know, from a very early age. And so, you know, my mom used to have a uh, I have a favorite saying she's like you know the harder you kick the ball the further it went and that was sort of our parenting style like how hard can we push you guys and and I always used to be like look it, it's nice for you to say but I'm the ball getting kicked hard man like it, <laughs> it's not that funny when you're the ball you know um and so you know uh, I I grew up in a in a in a you know family environment where nothing was wrong but nothing was right it wasn't massive hate and it wasn't overflowing love. It was just middle ground all the time. And, and that kind of really, you know, sort of got me chasing things in life that when I look back today, I'm like, Desi Fest is a reflection of my need to find a community. It happened to manifest in a music festival and it happened to manifest at a large show. But really, Desi Fest fills the void of me not having family in life. And I know you're kind of open about this and talking about like the strained relationship you and your dad used to have. And, you know, it's not like unusual in the sense that a lot of immigrant men or boys grow up having strained relationships with their dads. I mean, why do you think that is? And like, I mean, as second or I guess we're second generation, technically men, how do you think we can change that dynamic? I think, you know, the, the thing that I understood later in life is this idea of sacrifice. And in my 46 years, I've never really sacrificed anything. Wait, wait, wait. You're 46? Yeah, man. Man, you don't look a day over 30. <laughs> if this is a video podcast. You guys will know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, I, I've never sacrificed anything significant. Like, you know, I've, I've given up stuff. I've struggled. I've worked really hard. But man, like when you decide to leave your entire family uh, and go to another country, that's sacrifice. Yeah. And, and, and you bring with yourself some expectations of future benefit. You don't know if it's going to happen, but shit, like, you know, I was born in 1975 
right? Uh, and my parents married like a year before that. And then, you know, I popped out and then we left for, for Singapore like two, three years later. So imagine my dad now, like, you know, head of the family of like eight or nine siblings, just got married to an arranged marriage, doesn't even really know my wife. Baby pops out, another one pops out, my brother's out and he wants to like move to Singapore for a better life with a woman that he knows for only two years with two kids that he doesn't really know and a whole new adventure, that's sacrifice. You know what I mean? And so I think when I look back at it, a lot of like the decisions, the generation of my parents made came from this belief of a better life without knowing what that meant to them. And they had a blueprint that they carried along with them, which is 100% academic focused. You know, you come here, the kids will go to school, they become doctors and engineers and that have a stable life and my role is done. And that was the satisfaction he was looking for. But on the path to get there, because the blueprint is different with every country you move to, and we as kids are being influenced by the ecosystem that we're growing up with, you no longer can hold on to your plan, but you can hold on to like the end result you hope for, which is like kids are in a country, they're doing something valuable. And when you zoom out, yeah, I didn't follow your path, but I've built businesses. I've got employees that are depending on us. I've built community projects. I've made money and I've supported a lot of people in their dreams. If that is the definition of success in your parents' eyes, then the path to get there has no meaning anymore. But we hold on to the path, or at least our parents did, because that's all they knew, you know? And so once that sort of clicked later in life, and, and mainly because I'm now a parent and you're a parent, so you get, mm -hmm. you know, so now as soon as I had kids, I'm like, oh, damn, like this is why they were doing the things that they're doing. This is why even though their blueprint was flawed, it is their blueprint. And so I cannot hate you for wanting the best for me without knowing how to give me the best. And, you know, I wasn't the best kid, man. Like, you know, today I have, you know, describable labels like, you know, ADHD and a bit of OCD. And okay, now I get it because it makes me strong and powerful and entrepreneur. I can multitask, I could do shit. But when you're, you know, 11, 12, 15, like how do parents deal with you? They don't, they don't know what, what to do. And so uh, I think we have to, we have to, as often as possible, try to put ourselves in our parents' shoes as difficult as it is, move past the pain and then really understand what were the, their intentions versus their actions. And if I measure them on their actions, I will hate them forever. But I chose to, to look at their intentions and then it was easier to love. That's a great answer. I mean, for myself, I mean, it's typical. I think um, I had a strained relationship with like my dad, especially, but I think it's just exactly what you said. They had, um, they only knew kind of one path to success. They're, they wanted to kind of help me be successful. They never explained it. They just kind of prodded me along with no kind of explanation of where we were going. Um, and then that re resulted in a strained relationship. But obviously now we're like, you know, much better now. And especially me as a dad now, I kind of, like you said, I definitely understand where he's coming from. Um, there's this thing, one article I read, I think it's called like, The Long Tail. It mathematically breaks down, you know, when you get to the age of 30, you would have seen your parents for like 90% of your whole life based on kind of certain assumptions. And that changed kind of my way of thinking. Like I became more intentional in building my relationship with my parents because even though they're not like my friends where I can go and have conversations, 
I just go over to my parents' house, obviously before COVID, but like I would just go there and most of the time would be silence or they'd give me food and we talk, you know, superficially. But I think that meant a lot to them. So for me, I just kind of, you know, just decided to kind of be intentional and kind of just understand that this was what was going to be my relationship with my parents. And that's okay because, you know, they did the best they could for me. And now I got to take what I learned from them and pass it on to my kids. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you'll make mistakes and you'll, you'll do things where, you know, our kids are going to have their version of, you know, I hated my parents, but, you know, I, I, and I think to your point of how do we break the cycle, it's learning what is our role as parents and there's Mm -hmm. no blueprint for this stuff. And my role as a parent is not to control you. Uh, You know, there, there are many people by the time they get to choose their own clothes. I remember my daughter, I think she was uh, maybe six or seven for the very first time. She's like, I could pick my own clothes. I'm like, wait, Six or seven, you're already independent. Mm-hmm. You know your fashion choice. You're a little human. Like you, you've got your own vision now. And most kids by like six or seven, 80% of their personality is fixed, right? Um, and so I have moved into the role of like, you know, being a guide on their life's journey more than dictating their journey. Because who am I to predict what's going to happen in 20 years, man? I can't even predict you know, what, what's going to happen in the next two years. And we've seen what COVID has done. So, you know, I think if we move from uh, controlling and dictating to guiding, A, we'll have a better relationship and B, we get to be human. Like, you know, that my role is not to protect you and like, you know, tell you what to do. It's to be there when you fall backwards and, and, and share some stories. So crazy you brought up that model because like that's what I was, dictator, coach, and then friend. That's kind of the path I'm hoping it kind of, you know, I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm hoping to hit those milestones. So I, I trust me when my daughter decides to start dating, I will be a dictator. <laughs> the shotgun and the, and the, and the barbed wire with the electricity around the house. Like, like bad, boys too? bad boys yeah, too. That's that's all, <laughs> I got some dudes that will come over. Like that's all in the plans. I don't, you know, that's there. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Um, but yeah, I want to kind of obviously delve into, you know, kind of, you know, get people to understand like who you are. And by the way, for those of you who don't follow his newsletter, you should kind of follow Satish's newsletter. I do. I read his, uh, it's a nice bite-sized kind of, you know, nugget of information or some kind of good knowledge. So it's a shout out for you after, but, um, yeah, let's delve into kind of your entrepreneurial journey. Let's start off with like, you know, I, Blue Blend Digital. I think I started connecting with you kind of at the end of it, just as you kind of got acquired. And then let's talk about, you know, Daisy Fest, which is huge, you know, bringing South Asian music to the forefront. And then, you know, later on, we'll kind of delve into Scolio. But let's start with kind of Blue Band Digital first. Yeah, man. Uh, so so to talk about Blue Band, we got to kind of have to go back two steps on the two previous companies. So as I alluded, uh, I, was, I was studying computer science in, in, at Ryerson. Um, and by my third third year, fourth year, um, my, my extroverted personality was starting to come out. And I was like, Where, who's this guy? You know, because I've always looked at myself as this like, you know, nerdy sort of introvert kid, shy, can't make any conversations. But then this other person was starting to show up and I'm, and I'm DJing and I'm emceeing and I'm playing basketball and I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm like, who's this guy? And so um, I've been really paying attention to my personal growth and I had an opportunity to run for student body president for the faculty of science. And it was my first like decision for myself. Uh, up to that point, I didn't really have a choice, right? Like the country, the school, I had to go to computer science or virus and it's the only thing my parents will pay for. Like, so choosing to run for student body president was like my first adult choice. And I was so excited about making the choice. 
and I ran and I won unanimously. Like it was incredible. Um, I don't know if it's because, you know, uh, I was South Asian and they wanted a, a change in, in like just approaching attitude or I just ran a really good first time marketing campaign. I don't know what it was, but that was the first time I got introduced to the business of anything. And I was really addicted to it. So, you know, when I started my first company, Spider Designs, which is a software development company, fourth year university, I was learning how to sell and pitch, but I wasn't doing the work. I had a bunch of students that were doing the work. I was a sales guy and I was interested in storytelling and closing deals. And then by the time we graduated, you know, that business moved into the second business called New Age Consulting. And we were doing large enterprise solutions and Y2K work and all sorts of stuff. Again, it was very good money. I was getting really good at selling and, and connecting the C-suites, but it was a creative side that was still in the university days without an outlet. So when I had an opportunity to sell that company to my partners, I was like, whatever I start next needs to be creative. And around this time is when Daisy Fest was bubbling in my head. I was like, hey, I'm in music. Uh, the question that started at Daisy Fest is like, how do we describe like being South Asian? Is it inclusive? Is it exclusive? Am I, you know, Tamil speaking South Indian or can I be South Asian? Like, you know, I wanted to answer that question. And so I fell into the agency model, which is what Blue Band was by accident. And when I discovered there was a whole new category of businesses that are called agencies and they get paid to be creative and copywriting and storytelling. And that industry was 50 years old by the time I got in, introduced to it. And it was going through a fundamental shift in, in technology and approach. And, and I felt like it was a perfect starting point as it got into the next 50 years of the industry for somebody like me to get in there with my tech background. I needed a creative outlet. Nobody's really figured out online storytelling, what we know today as UX, UI, and all this stuff. There's no rule book. So there's no way to like get me out of the game. There's no way to put you in a box. So I was like, yo, let's do something. So that's what Blue Van, you know, was always in the hopes of doing. How can we become really good storytellers using the digital platform? Can we actually create emotional connection with users on a website, on an app, on a, on a Twitter account, whatever it is, uh, and, and get them to buy something? And so uh, in pursuit of building the storytelling version of myself, we built a pretty big agency. You know, by the time I sold the company, we were top five in the country. We had 65 people in Toronto working for us. We had an office in, in Costa Rica, a small satellite in, in Montreal and Ottawa, and a starting uh, presence in India. And um, it gave me a beautiful, like, 12-year run. Um, every single day was exciting. And every single day, I got to play in something strategic, something technology, and something creative. And it was like the perfect ecosystem for what I needed in my 30s to really appreciate my ability to be a creative thinker. And, and, and that was what, you know, Blue Band was. And so by the time I sold it, that purpose had served as need. Things were becoming repetitive. Um, I didn't want to fall into the trap of getting old in a business that you can't get out of. Uh, and, and the agency world was slowly dying as companies have brought skill set in-house or the gig economy and all this stuff. So it made sense to get out. And also my three successful companies have all been sort of this like eight to 10 year run. So it made sense that at the end of like a 10, 12 year run, the things I'm supposed to get out of my time at Blue Band was done. And 
my dad passed away, so I didn't have a villain in my life anymore to like make a point to. It was just emptiness. I'm like, okay, what's the point of all this? And then that led to a bit of a cancer scare. So all of it led to like, okay, I need to rethink uh, what work means to me and what hustle looks like and what my next passion is because the things that got me this far um, are not me. I don't want to like put myself into a comfort level and then just stay there because it made sense. This episode is sponsored by nobody. That's right, nobody. So if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button, that would mean a lot to me. How did the acquisition happen? Like, um, tell us about so, that. Yeah, so, so you know, uh, once, once I got out of the whole um, cancer scare, this was, you know, uh, about six years ago, I was playing basketball, I went to the bathroom and there was blood and I was like, what the hell happened? And I thought it just because I, you know, overexerted and then it happened over and over. Uh, almost eight months of testing and finally found, they found a, a benign tumor in my kidneys, which was creating the, the, the blood issues. Um, and it was probably the first time where I was scared like of, of death. And my dad dies of cancer too. So for me, like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's my turn kind of a mindset, right? Oh shit, you know? Um, and, and, and I remember coming out of the operation thinking, man, like I've, I've always said, uh, as long as I had a laptop and internet, I, I could work anywhere. Well, cancer for the very first time made it impossible for me to work. And, and that's when I realized as much as I love the agency model, as big as we got, the whole thing is glued together with me. And if I get out of it, the whole thing comes crumbling down, right? And, and so if I, wanna, if I wanna create the value and leave, I gotta sell. If not, I gotta be all in. And I didn't wanna be all in, I'm done. Like I've done enough creative, we've won enough awards, we've made millions of dollars. What's the point? Uh, and so, you know, uh, we spent a year, uh, not chasing clients, but looking for white label partners. And my strategy was if I can become the biggest fish in somebody else's digital budget, they will make an offer. And so moonlighting and, and, and basically working with every agency in the market um, brought us in front of a company called Arrivals and Departures. Um, and we became just their, their you know, all in outsourced digital company for about a year and a half. And then it led to a natural like, hey, you guys are taking up a lot of our money. <laughs> What's your plan? And I was like, hey, man, you know, put a ring on it. We can talk. And, <laughs> and you know, and they made a very good offer. Um, it wasn't retirement money, but it was it was great based on, you know, getting out debt free, having some money in the pocket. Uh, and then I saw it as a great leverage now. Right. You know, when you when you exit and you're you're a person of color and you're coming out of a mainstream world, there's not a lot of people that look like me at the leadership level. At 42, 43, when I did it, I'm, I'm still the guy that could, could open doors for others. I'm not this 50, 60-year-old dude that's retiring, right? And I didn't want my exit from the agency were to be a retirement, but a way to position it as an opportunity to do something next. And then in doing so, demonstrate it's, it's okay for us to be creative. Like, let's, you know, I, I, I still look around, I'm like, how come there's not enough leadership running big digital creative thinking campaigns that are mainstream that are from our community. You know, why are we always the IT guys or why are we always doing ethnic marketing? Come on, let's go. No, makes sense. Tell us about, um, you know, uh, DC Fest, because obviously you've been in there for like 15, 16 years. Yeah, it's our 15th year, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So, so DC Fest, uh, I think started for me to try to answer that question, you know, especially once I, 
once I know my daughter was coming, I'm in a mixed marriage. My wife is Muslim uh, and I'm Hindu. And that was already like a crazy story to even get married. Uh, it was all okay to date. But the minute we're like, we're serious. Woo! <laughs> all the movie stops came out, man. I was like, I don't get it. You guys know each other for like three, you know, we dated for seven years. So I'm like, why is it even a surprise? I don't get it. Um, but, you know, once we knew we were going to have a daughter, I was like, well, how do I describe the culture? You know, uh, and, and so for me, Desi Fest was an outlet to, to find a way to talk about being South Asian in an inclusive way, that we don't have to pick sides. We could be different and celebrate it. And that I don't need to feel weird if I went to a South Asian event that's not Tamil. Or, you know, if you're a Tamil artist, why not be in a, in a different, like everything just felt very isolated and siloed. Um, and then because Blue Band was run by me, the brown guy, a lot of brands were reaching out to us for ethnic marketing, but the work is very much about translating mainstream marks. So I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't want to be a translation company. If you want real ethnic strategy, then you need to let us act on behalf of the culture. You can't just take what you did in English and translate it. So to prove to them that we know how to build a community and create a marketable engine, we invested our own time and money into this fest. And you know, when I started, man, there was no media network. There was no way to like consolidate marketing. There was no way to even target us online and stuff. Like it was just, you know, South Asian music was rolled up into, into world music. Um, artists didn't really have a platform unless you did the movie stuff. Um, radios weren't playing us. There was no TV channel, right? And so all this for me was a great chaos. And, and I'm motivated to have some, some version of a culture that I can explain to my kids. And luck would have it, timing would have it. At our first festival um, was at Young Dundas Square. Even getting the space. You know, we spent like three months trying to book an indoor venue in the city. And every one of them said no. I had the money. I had the insurance. Uh, I had the credibility. And they were like, nope, we don't want Indian events in our venue. Wow. Literally. Like, this is 2006. Like, I would be like, I would pay double the rental fee. You can keep the door. You can keep the bar. I just need a venue. Nah, no, it's okay. Thank you. And then, and then we figured you know, the city can't say no. We're tax-paying citizens. Anybody can book Young Dundas Square. It's just an application form. So we took a shot. And they're like, look, you know, uh, if you're not going to bring at least 5,000 people, it's going to look pretty dead. And I was like, I don't care if it's 300 people. We just need to make a statement. Hmm. And then first year, we had 28,000 people. Crazy. That just grew. And, you know, 2013, um, the last big outdoor event two years ago, uh, for the day, we averaged just under 150,000 people that came through the square at some point to check out some content. So, you know, and, and the feedback we get is, is maybe 80, like 20% about the talent. 80% of the story we get is testimonials about the vision that we had. You know, we've got people that messages saying, hey, I'm in a mixed marriage and this is the first time my kids got to experience my culture without feeling weird. Mm. Right. Uh, or I could be among other cultures and not feel threatened. Like, you know, we have stories of like people bringing their India and Pakistan waving flag and security is ready to like pounce on them. We're like, no, this is good cultural hangout. Like we get in the middle, we're going to create a separation and we made it inclusive. We made it OK. We made it, you know, easy for us to recognize the difference in each other, but still appreciate it. And that's that's what ACFS is is about and that's what we stand for we just happen to do it through music 
I know it's a nonprofit right now. I feel like, and I understand that, but I feel like there's so much potential with what you kind of already built with like, not just a need in Toronto, but like Vancouver or like Montreal or like just other parts of North America. And I'm sure there are like South Asian like music festivals or like some kind of festival around that. But do you have plans to kind of, you know, broaden the festival concept outside of Toronto? Well, when we first started the first three years, we were in Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto. Oh, I didn't know and, that. Okay. Yeah. And, and like, and it didn't work. It, it didn't work um, because in each pocket, uh, it was really difficult to have an inclusive conversation. Like, like I'll tell you, like Vancouver, they, they frown upon the word they see hmm. because it's a heavy, you know, generational, you know, community out there. Um, they think they see means villagers and it's a, it's a derogatory word. So when Daisy Fest shows up, they're like, we're not supporting you. We're not villagers. We're ballers now. You know, we're, we're making money. But Daisy just in Sanskrit means people. It doesn't mm -hmm. imply anything about your gender, your, 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 your wealth, right? Um, and we just couldn't get past that interpretation, right? Mm -hmm. And as hard as we tried, if it wasn't Punjabi music, nobody would show up. And mm -hmm. so we're like, okay, there's a, there's a diversity challenge that we can't get past yet. And when that naturally happens, maybe there's a space that we can come back. Montreal, totally different. It's like everybody will be like, oh, I'm not going, man, because nobody's going to be there. And then everybody will show up to see who's not there, and then we'll have a great party. <laughs> I was like, I don't understand. All of you said nobody's coming, and then everybody's here. It's a full house. And so we looked at all the stuff, and then, you know, three, four years into it, we, we also decided if we spread ourselves too thin, there is regional value but if we want to make canada the hot spot like uk or india or pakistan we need to centralize and go big and then and then by year five we're like no we're gonna make ontario or toronto the south asian music hub just like you know london is big you know mumbai is big we're gonna become that next center and we're gonna want we're gonna build it so big that other artists want to come into our market by choice and we're no longer exporting, we're importing talent. And then we sort of went small and niche and got big. Mm, that's amazing. Um, I don't know what, I'll get to that question later. I was gonna ask you, how do you sleep? But we'll figure that out after. <laughs> um, you know, and like, I'm excited to kind of, you know, talk about your latest project, Schoolia, which, you know, I know you kind of started it as a result of COVID, but, you know, brilliantly positioned, good timing. You know, I think uh, this definitely has legs. So maybe talk a little bit about Schoolio, how it's going, some challenges and like, you know, where you see it kind of going. Yeah, man. Schoolio is, uh, it's an interesting project. Um, it took me a while to understand why I'm doing it. What I mean by that is there's things that I do to make money, like everybody does, but they're never sustainable. They're never they're never bigger than a couple months, you know, um, because the energy that goes in dies really quickly without a long-term, you know, vision or plan or purpose, right? Um, and and after I sold the agency in 2017, I've been a CEO for over two decades. I was like, what do I do next? And then I made the mistake of spending the first six months looking for a job. I was like, I would be the catch of the market, yo. <laughs> like, you know, and and. Uh, I was 0 for 30. I was like, wait, how can I be unemployable? 
Then I realized, man, who's going to take a risk on a 40-something-year-old serial entrepreneur in a culture? And, and then I was like, okay, then let me go into the startup ecosystem. And that's how I got into Ryerson and traveling to Brazil and Valor Group and all these things. But um, my first idea for Schoolio was started because at home, my daughter is doing tutoring, math and language, once a week. And it was costing us about 300 bucks a week, okay? 1,200 bucks after taxes. And it was only after I started like paying attention to it and I'm going, okay, we're paying 1,200 bucks. What are we getting out of it? And who are these people teaching her? What's the accreditation? Are they qualified? Does the school even know she's getting tutoring? And the school didn't give a shit. They're like, oh, you're getting extra help? Amazing. And then <laughs> the tutors have no connection to the teachers or what, what's being taught in class or what order. So we have these two ecosystems that are supposed to care about my daughter in the middle and they're not talking to each other. Yet, I don't know what to do with school and I don't know how to not pay for tutoring because in both is an <coughs> exit. Like I can't pull them out of school and I can't stop paying for tutoring because I don't know what to do at home. So, so the first version of Schoolio was to create an Uber model where we can bring in real accredited teachers, the ones that are just graduating that don't have a job yet or retired folks that have nothing to do. We can bring the cost down. We can centralize the, the ecosystem. We can put some real cool credibility around it and then make tutoring more accessible to everybody. Today, you know, a large portion of the population that are you know, middle, middle class or even lower can't afford tutoring. It's expensive, right? Um, so that was the vision. And then as, and we spent over hundred grand building this technology, man, uh, in 2019 and the grand like launch March 1st, 2020. And we had about 80 teachers and about 150 parents signed up to use it over March break, give us some feedback in our MVP, we'll tweak it, release it again for, for September 1st of 2020. And then when it went live, nobody gave a shit because it was COVID and everything was shut down. Um, and, and the biggest problem now in March is how can we teach at home? So I probably like you would have, you know, if you're in my position is Google, how do I buy Canadian curriculum? And then you realize there's no such thing as Canadian curriculum. Mm -hmm. There's Canadian expectations released by the provinces and then they hire teachers to deliver. So now I'm like, okay, so out of the 45,000 teachers, every one of them has their own way to teach the same expectations. No wonder there's no uniform way to like appreciate, you know, what's being done because every teacher's got their own model of teaching but they all follow the same standardized testing. So how does that make sense? <laughs> right? Um, and so that was the first time I looked into the homeschooling market and I realized, man, over 2 million families in Canada, over 7 million in the US have zero impact with COVID. They don't care. They've already taken their kids out. They've already you know, figured out homeschooling. They've got their, their process in place. And in, you know, data in the last five years is demonstrating kids that are coming out of homeschooling are scoring on average like 60, 70% higher in entrance exams for post-secondary than kids coming out of public school. They're more independent, more resilient, right? Mentally strong, all that stuff. And I'm like, what is this ecosystem? Because I've always known the homeschooling family is just like, you know, kid down the street that never went anywhere, right? It's you're a like, weird family, yeah. Yeah, you're like, who's this family? The kid never goes anywhere. He's always outside the house playing. Like, why is me in school? Now I'm like, oh, God damn, this kid's doing something right. So 
you know, in the absence of chaos and after spending all this money into this thing, we said, okay, maybe there's an option to either solve this problem or get out because, you know, we've already spent all this money. Uh, so I reached out to a bunch of homeschooling moms who are also teachers and, and, and wanted to know how they get their curriculum. Uh, some of them are like, I write my own. So I said, what if I can license it from you and pay you a royalty? And they're like, I don't know who you are, but it, I have it anyways. Why not? Um, so that's what I did. I, you know, I licensed uh, grade two, grade four, and grade eight. Went to market with a campaign to say, this is what we do. And the roof blew, man. Like, it was the perfect collision course that I didn't know is possible because tons of homeschooling parents is already looking for curriculum. And then you add to it these new parents that are pulling kids out of school or, or at home and don't know how to support them, tutoring models failing and all this stuff. Um, and, and, and so I got really excited about helping this, this group of outliers. And I had no idea the inequality that existed. The minute you pull your child out of public school, you're cut. There's no checkups, there's no follow-ups, there's no care, there's no love, there's no funding. You're completely out. And it's the same inequality that drove me to start Blue Band. Like, why can't I be a creative person? Why do I have to be a technology person just because I'm brown? Why can't we create a large outdoor millennial-focused South Asian music festival? It's got nothing to do with Bollywood. Why are these 8 million families cut out of the system when, is, when the kids from these families will equally impact my future? by making decisions on economics and policies and, and, and medicine and innovation. So it didn't make sense to me. And this kind of stuff gets me really excited. Like as a human, as an entrepreneur, I get pumped, man. And as soon as I saw that big picture, I'm like, okay, this is what I was looking for. And, you know, when I said earlier, um, two bad report cards ruined my life, I have a chance to fix it now, or at least get into the game because until the first bad report got at 14, I did nothing wrong. And then the second one got us to move out of the country. And that's still the same thing happening today. You know, the same approach is being applied, the same way to discount kids, the same way to, to grade them is all happening still. And, and I feel like uh, I have an opportunity anyways in the next five to 10 years to create a model under Schoolio that can give structure and innovation, a new model to assess student comprehension that could become an alternative option, both for the homeschooling community that's growing and also just folks that want another opinion. Like we look for second opinions in everything in life, the reviews on YouTube before we buy a product. But when a teacher or school system says, this is your child, we take it for verbatim. There's no second opinion. Well, there's a couple of interesting things you said because homeschooling, just like you, I thought was kind of this outlier thing, but there's like a stat and I think um, COVID accelerated it where parents were already kind of increasingly, I think the population was like 5% of families across North America were already doing it. COVID just accelerated. It's going to be like seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, which is crazy. Number two, you have schools like what Elon Musk is doing or like alternative forms of education. And myself, I've been thinking about it because I know we're like we're looking at setting up an RSP for our kids, but I was like, what will education look like 15, 20 years from now? Like, what am I saving for? What if they don't want to do university? What if they want to, I don't know, start a business? They want to do something non-conventional that isn't supported by the RSP program. So I think that's why I was pretty excited kind of seeing and following kind of what you're up to with Schoolio, 
where, you know, like you said, you're, you might have a chance to kind of, if you build the scolio like the way you're planning to, to kind of really change education, change a, ch a child's trajectory in life, like the opportunity you didn't get or the way you were perceived because of a grade, you're going to get to change that with kind of homeschooling. I think homeschooling is something I'm seriously considering, but I don't know yet, but we'll kind of see how the education yeah. system plays out. So. And, you know, and, and, and look, I'm not pro homeschooling. Um, I, and, and, and I certainly don't have a hate on for the public school system. I love it. Like I am a product of it. Right. And I think at, at, at school, our vision is very simple. How can we teach students their capacity for learning? Like, I don't want to teach you math, language, and science and have you remember it to pass a grade in teaching you those lessons. I want to teach you how you learn. So if we can focus on understanding comprehension and the type of content that naturally makes you comprehend more of a topic, then we have an opportunity to give you the gift of like learning anything on your own. And that for me is the, the true power of public school or homeschooling. And I feel like in this standardized grading system, we're so caught up on being able to memorize and repeat what you learn in class that there's no real measurement of like, what is your style of learning? And imagine a world where by the time you get out of grade eight, moving into, you know, high school, or university, you have a better sense of how you consume and comprehend anything in life. Now there's no fear in career changes. There's no fear in living a digital nomad life. You can literally do anything you want in life because we've shown you by grade eight or your 13, 14 year old self, how you learn anything. Did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. Do you think teaching kids, like you were saying, like say math, science, et cetera, to teach them how to learn is better than say asking a kid or child, sorry, um, do you want to know how rockets work? Do you want to like launch a rocket? I feel like asking a question like that is like, oh, I do want to learn how to do that. Or I want to learn how to make a video game. I got into engineering because I used to like make video games when I was young and I was so curious, like, how do I build a video game? That got me curious. Like, like when I was like, like 10 or 11, um, you know, like obviously now it's like more kind of mainstream. So yeah, I definitely agree with kind of uh, what you're saying. I just feel like there's going to be cultural challenges that we'll kind of see or pushback around you know, making things like job changes. Um, you're, you're saying make them normal. And I agree with you because, you know, like why stick with a job if it's not um, great, you know, creating value for yourself or the company, like you should switch jobs every two years to increase your salary, to learn new things. But I feel like those will still be challenges, but I think um, you hit the nail on the, on the, on the head. So, yeah. And what you said is the secret sauce, man, curiosity. Like, yeah. you know, I see my son, you know, getting into the system, you know, SK, JK, grade one that he's in uh, moving or grade two, there's this abundance of curiosity. And then by the time he goes through the system, curiosity is stamped out and is replaced by structure and following the process. And that's the secret sauce. If we can figure out through the act of education, what are the things that make you naturally curious, whether it's building rockets, video games, fashion, music, whatever, and if the curriculum can tailor itself to give you the curriculum in the manner that you are naturally curious, 
then you're going to comprehend more. And like, I look at my daughter, I'm like, yo, she's not that good in math, but man, she's really good at music and she's really good at video editing. Both need math. So will I falter for being crappy in algebra? No, because mm-hmm. she's learning how to do time and slicing and video editing and beat mixing. That's all math, right? Mm-hmm. But according to the school, one version is right and one version is wrong. And so I think this is where when I look at like, man, you know, of all the things I could have done coming out of Blue Band, why did I get involved with university and getting into the education space? What was that setting me up from? Of all the things I could have done in my career, how did I learn to be a great storyteller and a brand builder that didn't have that background coming out of university? And, you know, in nine months, we're, we're six figures now. We crossed 100K. Uh, April 1st, um, we're averaging eight to 10K in organic sales every month. We're not a, this is ARR, we're not even MRR yet. We haven't figured out what to do on MRR yet. We've got over 600 customers whose lives we've changed. And this has been my fastest growth trajectory ever in nine months. And we're, we're not even scratching the surface yet, man. Like I'm still learning how to talk to people about what we do, right? Um, and I think it's because my history and my personal pain and the life that I lived, my love affair with academics and entrepreneurship, all has created this perfect mix of passion and like hustle because I want to see change. And I've got the just enough resources that I've accumulated to help me push faster. So, and, and school year couldn't have happened anytime sooner in my life. It's happening now. It's happening exactly the way it's supposed to happen. So now that you kind of hit this amazing trajectory, you know, it's a question I always like to ask founders, like, you know, are you going to continue to bootstrap or like, are you considering at some point, you know, fundraising? And if so, like, how are you going to make that decision? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know the answer yet. I'm still exploring Um, because we're revenue positive with very little overhead. We're making money, right? Um, but there's a speed that I want to create and there's some leadership that I want to hire to bring more intelligent people into the company. That's going to take more money than what we have as a bootstrap. On the flip side, I also don't know how to raise money. I've never raised money. I'm a, I'm a bootstrap guy. And so, you know, I've done the dance for a couple of weeks now trying to figure out, you know, uh, who can I talk? What's our valuation, whatever we're, you know, and, and so, I'm, I'm learning that dance. Uh, I think this is a, this is a invest in investment company. This cannot be a bootstrap to make the impact I want to make. If I don't scale, this is a really good two, three, four hundred thousand dollar publishing company. Like we don't have to do anything more than what we're doing today. We have amazing curriculum. We're across you know five provinces now, and it's a great side hustle. We'll sell books. Parents will be happy. I'll make some money, right? Um, but that's not what this is about. This is about fundamentally questioning the role of education, the role of educators and parents, and then really what is the future learning models that will impact the next generation that's different than mine and yours. And that question, those questions got me really pumped because I don't know the answer. And that's when I'm the best, when I don't know uh, how to do something, but I kind of know what I want to do. Then I spend the next eight years, 10 years, 50 years, I don't care living in the house. Love it, man. Um, as you're talking, like some gears are kind of turning in my head. So definitely we'll talk about 
you know, what you just kind of said uh, later on, maybe, um, maybe after the podcast. Um, you know, another topic I wanted to kind of hit on was you talked about kind of this grand vision of Schoolio and, you know, you're like a man of vision, like you, um, you have big dreams and then you kind of do take the steps to kind of make it happen. And I know you think about the future. So where do you see yourself in the next, you know, three to five years, you know, on a professional level, on a personal level? Um, yeah, where do you see yourself? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. You know, I think on a, on a professional level, um, I'm trying to build out this duality. Um, one is my core purpose, which is, you know, now Schoolio. Uh, and, and in the next three to five years, uh, I want us to be a global platform. I want us to not only be a Canadian company, but a North American company. I want us to be servicing, you know, international, you know, uh, expat communities and new immigrants and anywhere there's an opportunity to, to teach a child how to learn. I, I hope we could be considered and, and, and that's my dream come true in the next three to five years. And I think we have a real trajectory to create a, you know, eight to $10 million company in the next five years, if we get the right people on board. So that is like one part of me. The second part of me is the AC Fest. Um, we now have a very interesting problem in the community, right? One, uh, if corporations are no longer funding culture, how does culture survive if our people don't fund ourselves? It's a huge issue. And, and, and that's a very interesting problem because if, if the TDs and the governments are like, no, we're not spending money on the AC Fest or three of the other festivals that are happening, and our people don't want to pony up for tickets to see independent musicians and talent that's not coming from India, the VIP experience. What is the culture that we're going to have in the next five years? I think that's a huge question to ask uh, that I want to help sort of solve. And so, you know, that's the second part of, you know, where my, my, my thoughts are. And the third part is I've been addicted to sharing, you know, um, there's so many people especially people from our culture where we get stuck on the zero to like MVP and there's cultural issues. There's personal belief system that have to be unlearned. There's, there's, there's opportunities that you don't know how to capitalize on. This is even like money level. So I've been sharing a lot more um, to, to, to open up so that other people that are interested in following the path that I followed or you that we're not anything special. I didn't come from a big, rich family. My parents weren't like gifted in anything. We just worked really hard. And we worked really hard to get what we want. And, and, and that is a formula that is for anybody. I don't care what your life was, where it is today, how COVID impacted you, or you have some other. It doesn't matter because we have the greatest gift possible, which is our ability to make a decision. And as long as you have the ability to make a decision, you can continue to keep making them until things change. And for me, those are the three things that um, I've now uh, put into like things I care about every day. So when I get up, based on a day, one of those three is really active. And then the other two are sort of along for the ride. There's other days where different things take over, but um, I've now got a nice formula. You know, I know why I'm sharing. I know why I'm on social media. I know... You know, for a while I got out of Facebook and social because I just didn't know what my purpose was. Now I'm like, awesome. I know my voice. I know what I want to share. I want, I want to share the kind of topics that I care about. And then, you know, uh, don't chase feedback. Don't chase response. I'm just 
sharing it to see, you know, where it can add value. So um, that's what I see myself in the next three to five years uh, to be, to be sort of feeling fulfilled, you know, and then add to that, like the family life, you know, uh, bless my wife who's been with me now for over 25 years. Uh, hopefully she'll still love like this entrepreneur lifestyle that we live, <laughs> you know, uh, the kids are getting older. And so we're becoming less and less important in their lives. And so trying to maintain that, that, that closeness is really important to me. Um, and, and yeah. And then the rest, you know, the, the world would decide. So what is that? That's a good segue into personal legacy. How would you want your legacy to be remembered by like your family, friends, you know, fellow entrepreneurs or whoever, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough question only because I, you know, for a brief moment during cancer, I really felt like this was it, right? Uh, and you can't explain that feeling until you've experienced it. Like no book, no movie, no podcast can give you that feeling. And I remember at that point, um, when I thought about legacy, there was two things that, that came to mind. One was, did everybody who got a chance to experience me in their life have a positive thought in their heads? Like when you look back about me in your life, did it bring you a bit of a smile and a, and a, and a bit of like, like sadness that I'm no longer around or were you indifferent? And I spent the life trying to build a life where when you think of me, it's positive and you have a, a natural smile that comes up because I've added something to your life. Mm. And and that's because I grew up with none of that. So for me to put that back into the universe was really, really important. Uh, and then the second thing is for me was, did I, did I like really try, you know, did I try really hard to live a life where I gave it all. And honestly, when, if cancer did took its turn, you know, uh, five, six years ago, I was okay. Cause at that point I was like, I gave it all, man. I gave it all at that point. Uh, and so I got no regrets. And then, you know, uh, whenever it happens again, I still don't have any regrets because, uh, you know, you get 100% every time. What was your first thought? Because, I mean, I know I can't imagine kind of, you know, finding out news like that. So, like, when you first found out, like, how did you, pro like, were you by yourself? And, like, how did you process that? Like, you know, hearing that you had cancer. Yeah, no, I, I went to the doctor by myself because um, I, I didn't want to like react to my wife there and my kids there. Um, and, I, and I remember sitting in my car and, and you know, uh, for a good 30 minutes, like I was completely blank. I, I didn't know what to think. Was, there was no feelings. It was just a sense of like uh, calmness. I don't, it's weird to use that word calmness. But, you know, something that dark in your head, like it just you, you just don't know how to understand it. So your system just shuts down. You just kind of like, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm feeling right now. Um, and then all of like the craziest worst case scenarios came into my head. OK, my dad had it. So it has to be true. What happens if I pass away? Did I leave enough money in the bank? And, da -da 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 -da. and that was like the second phase of like what I was going through. And then the third was like all the things that I'm going to miss. You know, uh, and and like I'm not gonna see the teenager of my kids, and you know I'm, I'm not gonna see their wedding, and all all the stuff like the missed opportunities became important. So, you know, for me getting out of all that mindset was like, okay, so if this ever happens again, how do I avoid all three of those feelings? Well, I've now better set up my finances, better set up 
like my family so that if something were to happen, I know everybody's protected or protected to the best of my abilities. Because, you, you know, there's no, you know, forever in anything. And then two, I don't miss too many things. I, I try to live in the present. Like, you know, I read, I read to my kids and I, we go out to play and I life schedule around memories. Um, and that's probably the biggest thing I realize is, is most of my memories was around building companies. And then for the last five, six years, I forcefully changed that to memories with humans that I respect and love. Because that's what I want top of mind when, when something goes down again. You know, I don't want to be thinking about me in an office building a company. I want to think about the dinner dates. I want to think about the ice cream I shared with stranger. And I want to think about the beaches of my wife. And like, I want, to, I want those memories. And I realized I didn't have those because I spent so much of my time in boardrooms trying to build a company. And so, uh, so that's kind of, you know, how I've changed, you know, the last five years. I know you kind of quickly brushed by it, but I think it's an important topic you talked about, which is the topic of money, which I feel like is quite taboo to kind of talk about it. But it's a tool, right? At the end of the day, like you said, you thought about, hey, did I leave enough money for like my family to kind of take care of themselves if I'm gone, right? So how do you view money now? And like, how do you, like, what kind of things do you invest in? I mean, you know, sharing whatever you want to share, but like, high level, like, how do you view money? How do you invest? Like, how do you, you know, set yourself up and your family? kind of moving forward yeah no that's a good question and you know um it would be a lie if i said i have a healthy relationship with it you know um i don't because money was always used as a fear tactic right in my in my in my youth and so the more i made the more i got nervous about it the less i made the more i thought about it and so (laughs) i was like you know so you know the smartest things that that i ever did was uh hire an actual financial coach because you can't think about this stuff on your own because we don't have a good blueprint. We just don't with money, right? Um, and so, you know, almost 20, 25 years ago, you know, uh, I learned the art of saving money, investing in mutual funds, learning compound interest and what that means to me and how that grows, choosing what type of investment made sense for me. Like, I'm, I'm never good at investing in real estate and all these things because just, I'm just not that guy. But you know, putting money away in good stocks that had decent return made sense. Um, choosing like one good house in a good neighborhood and then really focusing on building that equity made sense to me, right? Um, and, 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 you know, uh, and knowing like, what is your lifestyle? What kind of person am I? Like, you know, am I really that bling person? You know, uh, we had a VPN company at one point that was bringing in over 120 grand us per month i've never did that in my agency world that consistently and i was like oh yeah now i'm gonna get the car and the watches and and didn't like you know it was cool for like a month and i was like this is exhausting man you know so really understanding like you know what what kind of life makes you happy is super important because then it allows you to understand what kind of money you need for that Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? So you said VPN? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I built a, a virtual private network company. Okay. Um, and we so, ran it for about a year and a half. And it was a pure moneymaker, man. I was like, wow. Um, and then what happened to that? Like, why, would you, why did you give that up? It was one of those like, you know, one year, two year run. I see. You get in, you, you make it. And then 
you know, it's too saturated, too competitive and you mm. get out. Um, and, and so sort of, I've got a bunch of those kind of like, you know, I made a ton of money selling, you know, bow ties for about six months because I was interested in bow ties and it was like a get in six months later, you're out. So I'm constantly like doing those kind of little things to give me some creativity. Mm. Um, but you know, so I think that's what I would tell anybody. Like when a get somebody outside of your culture, somebody who's got a different framework and relationship with money because we don't have one and and i'm generalizing as like south asians we just don't our version of money is very much survival minimalistic right and then to understand like how money makes money compounding compounding interest is such eighth, a beautiful eighth wonder of the world man eight one yeah you know like and i try to explain that to people they don't get it because for them it's like oh, i'll put in my bank account okay you know so and then third, be brutally honest. Like, you know, what, what does like a good life mean to you? And if it is penthouse and bling and, you know, parties and bottles, cool. There's nothing wrong with it. But you just know the kind of sacrifices in life you have to live to, to live that life. Right. And then and then once you have those three pieces lined up, uh, you're golden. And then, you know, I've always lived just below uh the kind of life I could live with the money I make. So then I'm, then I'm never at equal. It's when you're at equal that you lose, you know, uh, you know, if you're making 50 grand a year and you're, and you're living a 50 grand lifestyle, when you go to 60 or 70, you're going to level up. But if you have 50 K and you're and living a 30 K lifestyle, you're always going to have more money than what you can do with it. And that's when compounding interest takes over and all this shit where I'm like, Hey man, we don't learn this stuff. So find somebody to teach you. And even if you don't believe it, just go with it. I guess the, the real question I want to ask you is how much Bitcoin do you have? No, just kidding. <laughs> I just bought Ethereum for the very first time. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I had a, I, I shouldn't say that. Long time ago, like three, four years ago, uh, I think I put like a hundred bucks into an account for Bitcoin. And then randomly I checked it like, a few weeks ago and it was like 500 bucks and i was like what just happened <laughs> but then i have no idea like it was an old domain i can't get the money out it's kind of weird but then i bought some ethereum and i'm very interested in like ethereum as a blockchain yep. and so going all in means for me like investing in in building tech investing in the currency and like i all in because i believe in it uh, but now i'm super active in it yeah I've, I've been a big believer in ethereum for a while like um i think it's gonna probably I'm not an expert, but I think based on what I've read about it and kind of research, I think long term will do better than Bitcoin. But we'll see. Uh, it's a conversation for another day. <laughs> um, I know you're a big learning guy. Like you're like always kind of learning, putting out stuff there that you've kind of learned as well. What's like a book and or podcast you might recommend to, uh, you know, somebody listening out there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suck at like explaining it only because um i consume emotionally and not strategically meaning like like if this book wasn't beside me right now i, I can't tell you the book is called think like a monk and it's jay shed i can tell you the chapters that move me his his breakdown of internal external fears i internalize the content but i literally couldn't have told you if the <laughs> book wasn't here i'm reading a book you know, and so I, I, this is something that's always been bad. I, I read a ton of stuff, um, but for me, uh, reading and podcasts and all these things, um, it depends on my mindset. Like I'm, I'm an Aquarius. I'm a true Aquarius. I'm very emotional and my emotions dictate my success. And, okay. and 
and there's days where I'm uh, spiritually low. So I look for books that are personal growth. Like, what am I afraid? What am I concerned? What's the shadow that's chasing me? And I deep dive down this like personal growth path. And then there's other days where I'm reading like how are people making million dollar apps? What's your business strategy? What's your mode? What's your validation strategies? You know, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so I consume based on my cycles. And lately I'm in a personal growth cycle. I'm like, you know, I, I, I want to I learn how to deal with a few things that I've left alone. Uh, I think COVID has created a stillness that scares me. I've never experienced uh, you know, inactivity the way I'm feeling it. I've never experienced vacuum the way I'm feeling it. And I don't know why, but I don't feel right. And, and to answer that question of why is stillness bugging me, I've been really researching like what am I feeling and how am I feeling and why am I feeling this? And so I'm in like this really cool rabbit hole of personal growth right now, man. Sounds awesome. Uh, that's like the second person that's recommended that book. Um, and like, finally, I guess I would say like, what's a piece of advice that you would give to, you know, your aspiring or fellow like Tamil creators out there? Yeah, I mean, it's cliche, but um, I could say it with confidence because there's absolutely no rules that should hold you back. There's no rules. Steve Jobs says it. Everybody's heard the, the stories and the memes and I'm living it, man. Like if, if, if Satish can get off a plane in 1989 labeled uneducatable and dumb by a small country with parents that have basically disowned me. And in less than 20 years, it's not a long time. I'm not talking to you when I'm 80 in less than 20 years, I can be a, a, a proven business person with a three exit, having made millions of dollars, travel the world speaking, run a music festival, that, 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 da. What's your excuse? Like, we can literally manufacture our dream life by brute force. And a lot of us just don't want it bad enough. And, and, and that will be my sort of feedback. And I scream it at the top of my lungs with every chance I get is there is no rules. There's no ceilings, you know, even your past circumstances and all the crutches we hold on to, like my family and the neighborhood that I was born in. My, I agree with you. I feel for you. That's the present. Put a game plan for the next five years. Change as slow as it can be. I ate ramen noodles for an entire year, three times a day, and shady hot dog meat as a <laughs> bonus once a month. Like, I'm not exaggerating. Like for an entire year, three times a day, it was a packet of ramen noodles and some shady meat because that's what it took to build my first company. Would you do that? What if I can tell you if you did that for a year, you're going to make a million bucks two years down the road. Would you do it? Most of us won't. Mm -hmm. That's what separates the folks that talk about it and the folks that want to do it. Um, and the formula in between is super simple. You just got to go do it by brute force. Love it, man. Um, I think that's a good way to kind of segue into the fun part. I mean, it was already fun, but, uh, you know, more of like a get to know Satish segment. So I call this game Creator Confessions. I basically kind of ask you a question. You kind of just tell me it's rapid fire. You tell me first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Okay, man. I've, I've got an audience member here too. 
Hey. <laughs> I'm just listening the whole time. Um, favorite Tamil food? Rice and sambar. Okay. Something that scares you. <laughs> Ooh, something that scares me. Um, no, not heights. Uh, probably alone time. Alone time, okay. Favorite show you're watching? Ooh, Game of Thrones. A place you're itching to travel to after the pandemic is over? Spain. Fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Ravi. Which Ravi from uh, Bluemix. Okay. Favorite childhood memory? Ooh, uh, favorite childhood memory? Uh, being in my first play in Singapore, getting on stage for the very first time. Mm. Pet peeve? Complainers. Person slash celebrity you look up to? Jay-Z. Age you want to retire by? Never. Celebrity whose life you'd want to experience for one day? Jamie Foxx. And PSA you want to leave our audience with? Nothing is impossible. Love it. And that's Satish, guys. Uh, that was an awesome episode. I hope you guys got as much out of it as I did talking to him even now, even though I've known him. I've heard him say other stuff before. I was on a Instagram live with him, but I've I learned a ton from this and I hope you guys did as well. Um, Satish, if the people listening to this uh, loved it as much as I did, they want to connect with you and they want to pick your brain. They want to, you know, get some of that, you know, grind hustle that you have and just kind of transfer to them. How do they um, get a hold of you? How do they connect with you? Yeah, man, uh, I'm going to do a plug for the first time in my life. Yes. Um, on something personal, but, you know, hit me up on Instagram, uh, on LinkedIn, you know, I, I'm, I'm weirdly reachable. Uh, and I, and I, and I have that by design and my number hasn't changed in like 20 years. And so, uh, I'm the easiest person to reach. So do reach out and I take every call, every DM very serious. Um, and then for the very first time, I've got a two day boot camp that I've created. Uh, it's, it's every weekend indefinitely is 10 hours between Saturday and Sunday. And it's a chance for me to present a structured formula. I've been ad hoc coaching and things like that for a very long time. Um, and this is one way we're trying to bootstrap and school you until we raise money where my natural sharing can turn into a little bit of a budget that we can like reinvest in Schoolio. And so if you want a bit more of a formal structure around learning the things that I've been doing, we have a two day boot camp. It runs every weekend uh, indefinitely. And so you can, always sign up for that um, or reach out and I'll share whatever I can on the spot. And I'll make sure to include those links, including the one to your course. Um, maybe we'll, t- we'll talk about a, a special promo for uh, the Tamil Creator listeners. We'll talk about that. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> um, awesome. So, you know, thank you, Satish. And, you know, before you kind of hop off, for anybody listening, please give this podcast a five out of five, especially on Apple Podcasts. But if it's on Spotify and Google Podcasts, that's great as well comment share and like our stuff on facebook instagram linkedin and twitter and if you have any feedback or ideas on future guests or even specific topics reach out to me at hello at the and satish a nice way to maybe end off this podcast do you want to get your daughter to say something as like a a final kind of you know goodbye to the audience no does she want to say anything, I don't have anything. this is your moment to shine no, no, she's she's silent, observing, and uh, and and it's good. She's learned a lot about me today by just listening <laughs> to this conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you, Satish, for hopping on, and uh, 
you know, uh, wait for the, the next one, guys. Thank you, guys.